Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it is Wednesday at four o'clock again, and we are here to discuss another uh, session of the videos that John Clayton has provided for us entitled, Does God Exist? He has, to this point, uh, introduced his overall topic for this series of lessons that we have begun and he has also uh, spent the last two uh, lessons on the cosmos that wide vast array of of stars and planets and and all of those heavenly bodies that are out there um, beyond our existence that we know here on this earth and he's talked about whether or not there was a beginning for all of that and I think he has offered over the last two lessons some pretty convincing arguments that there was indeed a beginning to these and because there was a beginning we have a consistent experience where what we now know as the laws of physics um, apply. And this idea of whether uh, it was caused or not caused, if you say that it was not caused, then you have to abandon all of those laws that we know and have, have grown to know and, ex and, and acknowledge as being things that govern what we do and, and what we know about not only our world but all those worlds out there. If it was caused, then it was um, personal or it was an impersonal cause. And what we have decided, uh, or he will continue to talk and make an argument concerning the idea that if it was personal, then it had a design to it that it wasn't just, as he will say, rote, opportunistic, mechanistic chance that gives us all of this glorious um, evidence that we have out there that this was uh, part of creation. And, the, and ultimately, he'll talk a little bit today and start getting into this idea that if it was created, if it was designed, then someone had to design it and then there is, as a, as a result of that, a purpose for us to exist, that there is meaning in our life other than just what the evolutionists would tell us or the atheists would tell us that um, there is, is no real reason or rationale for us to exist, we just do. Um, that there are no laws, that there are no restrictions. Um, and so what, what uh, Clayton will do for us today is introduce the notion of design in the creation. He's established that it had a, had a beginning, that it was caused, and now he's going to talk about the design of that creation. So this, uh, this particular portion of what he's working with right now has uh, spans across two lessons this week and next week and this is part one of design in the creation
It will be on shortly. Just hang on. This is why we have all this stuff keyed up beforehand, so it doesn't do this. That's right. I had done that already, but for some reason, didn't it went away on me? Just a second. Musical interlude. Uh -huh. Okay. Here we go. Welcome to our next presentation in the video series, Does God Exist? In the previous couple of videos, we've looked at the viewpoints of beginnings. We started with the philosophical assumption that you're willing to admit reality. That's all we're doing. We're not coming from a biblical perspective. We're not coming from uh, the perspective of a preacher. I'm not a preacher. I'm a science teacher. But we're assuming reality. I think it's important to keep in mind the fact that this is not a discussion of absolute proof. You know, absolutely, you can't prove to me you exist. <laughs> if you want to play those kinds of games, somebody says, well, look at me. And I say, well, how do I know you're not just a fancy hologram? Uh, maybe we're looking at virtual reality. And I, <laughs> if you want to play those kinds of games, uh, you can do that. It's like the old story about the philosophy professor that uh, tried to call roll, and every day the class got derailed because the students wanted to argue with him about whether they were really there or not. And, you, you, you know, that's not the kind of thing we're doing. We're looking at a very practical line of evidence, assuming reality. And if we assume we exist, then there are some choices to be made. What do we believe about how we came to be? Was there a beginning to time, to space, to matter energy, to the cosmos as a whole? Or has it always been? We've looked at the scientific evidence. We've seen there is massive evidence that there was a beginning to the physical universe. Quantum mechanics and things that have to do with some of the modern discoveries of uh, superstrings and brains and things of this type lead us to discussions of how that process might have been. Let us understand that different laws, nonetheless laws, of physics may apply to the very small world of neutrinos and quarks. But the discussion we're having is the discussion of the physical, tangible world in which we live. It had a beginning. Was the beginning caused or was it not caused? We're saying that if you look at the suggestion that it's not caused, it means that you're invalidating all known conservation laws of science, a conservation of baryons, a conservation of matter energy, angular momentum, electric charge. All of the conservation laws go out the window, and that invalidates virtually all of known science. And I would suggest to you that a person who says they're looking at evidence, they're dealing with uh, science and with the world in which we live, cannot rationally hold to that position. It was caused. 
And our last question, which we're going to spend quite a bit of time on, is what has to be the nature of that cause? And there's several dimensions to this. The first question is, is it a personal cause or is it something that is not personal? If it's a personal cause, then there would be design. There would be planning. There would be intelligence in the creation in which we see. If it's not personal, then everything is the result of rote mechanistic opportunistic chance. That there is no intelligence, there is no purpose, there is no design in the creation in which we exist. I try to point out to you that at the college level and at the high school level, we get a pretty heavy indoctrination with the idea that we are just chance. We looked at the discussion of Richard Dawkins in his book, Rivers of Out of Eden, and saw that in this college level book, there is a very direct statement to the idea that everything is the result of blind chance. This is a statement from a junior high school science book, a statement by Huxley, which says it eloquently, and I tried to point out to you at the end of our last presentation that this is not a statement of science. This is a statement of personal religious ideology. Now look at this statement. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. You want to justify a sexual lifestyle? Get rid of any notion of God. I've had students in college lectureships come up to me sometimes and say, you know, I really can't argue with anything you said, but I don't want to change my living arrangement. In other words, they want to justify a sexual lifestyle by denying the concept of there being design and purpose in the creation. Politically, you can embrace anything if you reject the concept of us having a purpose to exist. And I would suggest to you that there has been a great deal of turmoil and suffering politically in the world because leaders have, in fact, embraced such a viewpoint. But these are moral, religious, political concepts that have to do not with science, not with evidence, but with the choices and beliefs of human beings on a very different level. What I'd like to do is show you some of the evidence that I think suggests that there is design. Now, I, I've said this before, and I want to say it again, and I'll probably mention it several more times. We're not suggesting this is a way of doing science. This is an apologetic. This is looking at the answer to the question of is there purpose in the creation or is it all driven by blind mechanistic chance, as Dawkins and Huxley have stated in the in material we have looked at. The first example I want to deal with is, is what I call intuitive design. Now, by intuitive design, we mean there's no mathematical treatment here. There's no sophisticated discussion in terms of quantitative analysis. We're simply asking you to look at this and consider the possibilities. And one of the areas where this just blows your mind, 
and, and you, you have to wonder at it no matter what your viewpoint is about these two issues, is the questions related to migration. One of my favorite examples is the Arctic Tern. Here is a, a relatively small bird that travels every year from its summering areas in the northern part of the United States and Canada to the southern end of South America. That's a distance of 12,000 miles one way. So every year this bird is flying 24,000 miles round trip. The question is, how do they do this? How do they make this migration? Now, you know of other examples we could talk about, but right now let's just take a look because there's been a great deal of experimentation involved at the Arctic Turn. One of the first suggestions that was made about this was that the turn in some way uses landmarks, that they see their way from one point to another. So what happened was the turn was equipped with contact lenses, essentially, which made the turn so nearsighted that it couldn't possibly see landmarks on the ground. When they did this and turned the turn loose over its area where it had spent the summer, the turn was able to make the journey without any problems, even though it obviously could not even see the ground. So the next suggestion was, well, maybe they hear their way. Maybe they, they've got some kind of sound that they follow. Uh, wind blowing through mountain passes, water lapping on shores. Maybe there's a, a sound initiative here. So they equipped some Arctic terns with earmuffs, essentially, which made the sound around them so obtuse that they couldn't possibly follow it. And the turn was still able to make the journey. Well, the next suggestion was that maybe they smell their way. You know, maybe there are odors that come from South America on the jet stream or something like this, and that they're able to follow the order. So they equipped turns with gas masks, essentially, which gave them the capacity to fly without being able to make any kind of sensory observation based upon smell. And they were still able to make the journey. Well, then the next suggestion was, well, maybe they're using the Earth's magnetic field. We know that almost all living things have magnetic domains in their brains or in other parts of their anatomy which enable them to do some navigation. So the idea was, well, maybe they're using the Earth's magnetic field. So they put magnetic scramblers on the turn. And the turn still was able to make the journey. So now the question became, well, are they learning to do this? Maybe... Maybe it's something that the parents teach the baby how to do, how to fly. And maybe it's just been passed on from generation to generation. So they did some interesting experiments. They took an Arctic tern that had been hatched in a laboratory. This bird had never seen another Arctic tern. And they took the tern to the northern areas in the first summer. And in the fall of the year, when all the other terns had left and had already gone south, they took the baby tern with a radio transmitter on its back, and they released it over the place where it had been found as an egg. You know what happened? The turn took off, it flew along the same route that its parents had flown, and it landed not far from its original mother and father in the southern edge of South America just a short time later. So you obviously can't talk about learning. And when you look at all the experiments, that have been done with the turn, the consensus now is that they don't have just one sense that enables them to make this journey. 
but that all of those senses that we have talked about, sight, sound, magnetic field, odors, that all of these things are a part of their capacity to make the journey, and it is a part of their genetic makeup. Now the question is, how does it become programmed into their genes? You have to realize that this process of being able to make the journey is indigenous to a variety of different animals, and it has some very definite purposes involved in it. It's just not a matter of nesting areas. It's also a matter of food. It's also a fact that the Arctic Turn supplies and supports more than one ecosystem. The turn supports areas in the far north where the eggs are used as a food source for many different animals, including the Arctic fox. The turn provides fertilizer for plants because the soils in those areas are extremely deficient of minerals. The turn is a vital part of not only the system in the far north, but also in the far south. You see, logic would say, well, there's no reason for the turn to fly 12,000 miles. If all they're trying to do is to get away from the cold, why don't they stop in Miami like everybody else does? I mean, there's no reason to add 6,000 miles to the journey if all you're trying to do is to get away from the cold. But they provide for the two ecosystems very far apart by making the journey. There is a logical reason for it. It does not involve learning, because as we've indicated, the experiments have shown that they can do it whether they've had contact with the parents or not. It does not involve any kind of survival technique, because they wouldn't have to go all the way to the South Pole, essentially, to get away from the cold. They could stop in tropical areas. I suggest to you there's a logic, there's a reason, there's a purpose, there's a design in them making this journey. Now, there are smaller forms of life that do this in incredible ways. I'm sure you've heard about the monarch butterfly. Here is a, a very small insect that has learned to do this by a very similar type of process. The butterflies spend their winter in a very small area in Mexico. And if you've read National Geographic or the Smithsonian Magazine, there have been many discussions about the ecological concerns of what's happening in the nesting areas of the butterflies. What many people don't realize is that these butterflies come from widely different areas. Many of them come from the eastern United States and even into Canada. They fly together en masse as the milkweed that they feed upon ripens to the area in, in Mexico where they spend the winter. It's fascinating. Look at the research that's been done on this. When they have a tailwind, they fly high so the wind pushes them along. If they're running into a headwind, then they fly close to the ground, minimizing the effects of the wind. The question is, how do they know to do that? How is that programmed into their genetic makeup? Their timing is perfect. But you have to realize that it's not one single butterfly that makes the journey up and back. The butterflies have laid their eggs. There have been the caterpillars produced. The caterpillars have spun their cocoons. New butterflies have come about. And yet all butterflies have come about with the capacity to make the journey. Obviously, they don't learn it. Obviously, the senses that they use must, again, be multiple. But unlike the turn, they have a different set of criteria. In this case, how they fly relative to the wind, the speed at which they move, and their food sources, all of those things are a part of their migratory journey. Salmon, who apparently primarily use smell, 
as a basis of locating their parent stream do a very similar thing. The number of animals that do things by migration is absolutely huge. And there have been wonderful, wonderful books, there have been wonderful television programs dealing with the migration process and how this is built into the genetic material of the animals to be able to do it successfully, not only providing for them, but providing for the ecosystem. When I was in Alaska, I learned firsthand how important salmon migration is to the entire ecology of Alaska. The food sources for the bears, the, the materials that are necessary for the plants to grow without the salmon, the ecosystem as a whole would not survive. I suggest to you there's purpose here. There's intelligence there. To try and formulate a chance model to do this is extraordinarily difficult. I didn't say impossible. Obviously, people have given explanations based upon chance. But I suggest to you there's an intuitive evidence of design that as you watch this happen, you have to ask yourself, can this really be something that is developed on the basis of chance? Some will say yes. I suggest the answer is no. Let me give you another example. There's two basic kinds of mammals. One kind of mammal is a mammal like me, a placental mammal. A placental mammal is one in which the baby is born basically fully formed, but basically helpless. I developed for nine and a half months inside my mother. And when I came into this world, I weighed seven and a half pounds and I had all my equipment. I had my eyes, I had my ears, I had my nose, I even had hair at that time. I was fully equipped. Now the other kind of animal that we're talking about here is a marsupial mammal. And the classic example is a kangaroo. When you see a picture like this with a baby in the mother's pouch, that's not a baby. As a matter of fact, essentially, that's a teenager. When a baby kangaroo is born, the kangaroo is very, very small. Incidentally, when I was in Australia, one of the things that was kind of fun was to watch the mother trying to kick the baby out of the pouch. You would see the mother hopping around and the baby in pursuit. If the mother made the wrong turn, the baby would dive into the pouch. And you could just see a pained expression on the mother's face as the baby landed in the pouch. And she would just sit down and say, well, I'm not moving until you get out of there. But, of course, he's looking for a free meal. And you, you, you have to, to look at this and just feel for the mother in this situation. But, again, when the baby was born, it wasn't anything like that. A baby kangaroo looks something like this. Instead of developing for nine and a half months, it has been developing for approximately five weeks. And it comes into this world as a helpless fetus. Well, not exactly helpless. I mean, here is an actual picture of a baby kangaroo at birth sitting next to a normal Indiana wasp. I want you to notice something. He has no functional eyes, no functional ears, no functional tail. He is virtually helpless. You know what he has to do in that condition? He has to crawl over 10 times his body length vertically up the stomach of a mother until he locates the top of her pouch. Here is a picture, an actual picture of a baby kangaroo at the instant of birth. A few seconds later, the baby turned over. He started wriggling and squirming his way up the stomach of the mother and ultimately ended up inside the pouch, hooked on to the mother's nipple. Now let's back up here for just a minute. Let's suppose he doesn't make it. 
Let's suppose he falls off, and mother doesn't help him. She doesn't even seem to be aware that he's there. Listen to this. If the baby doesn't make it into the pouch, he has a baby brother or a baby sister already conceived, already developing inside the mother that would be born within three to five weeks. If he does make it into the pouch and starts drawing milk from the mother, baby brother or sister will go into a state of suspended animation and will develop no further until he's out of the pouch. Now, if he goes two days and dies of a congenital deformity, at that point, baby brother or sister will resume their development. If he goes five weeks and dies of a disease, at that point, baby brother or sister will resume their development. If he goes nine months and leaves on his own steam, at that point, baby brother or sister will resume their development. There is always a baby waiting in the wings. The female kangaroo is perpetually pregnant. And ladies, if that doesn't give you a nightmare, nothing will. <laughs> you engineers thought that you thought up the first backup system. Here's a backup system that defies anything man's ever done, and engineers will be the first ones to tell you that backup systems are much more difficult to engineer than primary systems. By the way, in the United States, we have uh, an animal that's very similar to this, the possum. And, and it's important to realize when you deal with the possum that you're dealing with an animal that has very much the same characteristics. But by the way, I'm still not done with the kangaroo. Did you notice in this picture that there are two nipples? The nipple the baby is on is a low-fat milk nipple. The larger nipple there is a high-fat milk nipple, which is some 20% higher in fat content than the small nipple. Now, when the baby comes into the pouch, he has to get the right nipple because his body cannot metabolize the high-fat content of the large nipple. No problem. The high-fat nipple is so large, he can't get it in his mouth. He always gets the right nipple. Well, then how do you make him switch? Well, when the baby gets big enough to be able to handle the high-fat content, he's larger and his weight is pushing down on the bottom of the pouch. The bottom of the pouch is connected to the small nipple. So when the baby starts to push down on the bottom of the pouch, the small nipple is being pulled up into the mother. So the first time that mama kangaroo takes a king-size hop with baby sitting on the bottom of the pouch that pushes down on the bottom of the nipple, pops the small nipple into her body, and the only nipple he can now get is the high-fat milk nipple, which better meets his needs. Now again, the question here is, do we explain this on the basis of a long series of singularly beneficial accidents? Or is this a demonstration of intelligence and design and purpose in the creation? That's an intuitive answer. People, depending upon their prejudice on these things, will give different answers. But it is an interesting example of design. Now we've just talked here for a few minutes about one simple illustration of design on an intuitive level. And that is instinctive behavior in migrations or in the case of the kangaroo in reproduction. There are literally thousands of examples like the ones I have shown you. And as a matter of fact, we have a couple of books that are available upon request. These can be borrowed free of charge. They are called Dandy Designs. 
And at the time we're making this presentation and these videos, we have four versions of these. We'll probably have a fifth one here very shortly. And these books contain, each of them, over a hundred examples like the two I've just shown you. We have a series of presentations on the web. The website is dandydesigns.org, and they give you examples like the ones that we have been looking at. And you are welcome to go there and look at those. You're welcome to print them out or to use them in any way that you might wish to use them. We have in our printed materials, first of all, bibliographical sources that give you examples of this. There's, there's books like The Mystery of Migration that go in detail into some of the things that I have tried to present to you here. And these bibliographies are available upon request. We also have a children's series that deals with this on the level of a child and a children's website, scienceterrific.org. And if you're interested, we have a book that puts this material into a form that can be studied at your own leisure. It puts all of our discussion together. It's called The Source. We have a high school level version. We have a college level version. And you can borrow the book free of charge. All you need to do is to contact us for any of the materials that we have in the program. We also have a bi-monthly journal that helps you stay current in the things about which we're talking. If you'd like to be on our mailing list, you can contact us, and we'll be glad to add you to our monthly publication list. Uh, here is our address that you can use to contact us. We hope to hear from you. Now, we've looked at intuitive examples. The next thing we want to look at in our next presentation is architectural examples. So, as Chris moves the camera around so that we can uh, see one another and talk, <clears throat> let me say this. Let me start with, with an experience uh, that I have had, and I want to say that I've had it m more than once in my life. Um, in discussing religious things with people and in discussing this particular argument with people. There comes a point in the argument, or can come a point in the argument, where the person says, well, I see why you believe the way you do, but I don't see it that way. And that is almost a point of impasse where I feel, and there may be another explanation for it, that the person is not willing to accept the evidence that is in front of them. Truth is absolute. <clears throat> I don't think truth is relative. You can't see two things differently and both of them be um, truth, be factual, be the way it is. And so when you come to uh, an impasse like this in your discussions with individuals, um, I'm going to offer my rationale for why this exists. And it deals more with that person's unwillingness, that person's inability to say, I am wrong. I have been wrong for a long time. 
um, I choose not to submit myself to a religious answer on this question or these questions even though the evidence points in that direction. And my guess is that, and I think uh, Clayton suggests this, that individuals who, who run up against evidence that, that they can't refute um, are simply choosing an alternative that allows them to express and to live out their free will. The Bible places restrictions on us. God replaces or places restrictions on us in His Word. And there are people who don't like restrictions, who don't like to live by some sort of law that governs them that can affect their eternal existence. And there are, uh, and this is extremely difficult when, when you get people who will, and I'm just gonna call it not honest enough with themselves to say the evidence is clear. I accept what you're saying. I recant my stances that I have uh, taken over the years and the Bible is God's Word, and I yield to that truth. And what we hope to do with these lessons is, as we have said, provide you with enough ammunition, with enough evidence, with enough um, convincing arguments that those who choose science, and we have said you don't have to choose science, science and the Bible should support and do support one another. But those who want to say, no, I'm not going to choose the religious route because it has too many flaws or it's mumbo jumbo or, or it's not something I can really latch on to. I'm going to choose science instead. Are choosing something that will allow them to continue their approach to living their lives how they want to do so free of any restrictions, religious, moral, whatever you want to call them, that the Bible places upon them. In order to please God, you have to submit to God's will. And the Bible requires you to de-emphasize self and take His will over our will. And that's not an easy thing to do, especially if you have lived for a considerable amount of time yielding to your will and not someone else's. We do it, however, in society. We obey laws that we have in, in society because we want to dwell peacefully with those around us. We don't want to spend our, the, our lives in jail or in prison or in a situation where it ends up hurting us. But yet we will not do so from a moral standpoint, from a religious standpoint, where God places those types of, of restrictions and call it a burden 
if you want, but uh, it's not a burden. It is a freedom, actually, uh, within living within the will of God. So I'm, I'm offering that as a general opening statement. Chris, do you want to add anything? <coughs> yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. If, if we're fair-thinking people, you've got to look at the evidence that, that he's presented and think, even if you're an atheist, even if you don't buy into everything the Bible says, you don't really know whether God's out there or not, you've got to look at the evidence, just the logic that he's presenting and at least, at the very least, it pokes some holes in your thinking. Uh, I would, I did this, so I'm going to suggest you do it too. Because last week was very highbrow, you know, very is very cerebral uh, lesson. So, but he had a chart at the end of that lesson last week, um, and I pulled it up. Or I made my own little copy. Uh, if I can pull it up real quick, that'd be. That'd be nice, but uh, the uh, it start off with this idea that the universe is eternal, but it can't be eternal because the stuff that makes up the stars is burning up, so that doesn't make sense. So it's not eternal, so it had to have a beginning, so it had to have a cause, right? Uh, this is kind of what Rick was talking about in the beginning. If it's got a cause, um, or if it doesn't have a cause, then all the laws that we understand about science are destroyed. You know, they, they don't make any sense. So it's got to have a cause, and then it's got to be personal or in, or non-personal. And that's kind of what he's trying to figure out here: is whether it actually pure chance could not design a universe as intricate and as specific as we have. Take the, the bird that he talked about, take the kangaroo that he talked about, take um, Charles Darwin's statement about the eye being, he called it irreducibly complex. It needs each little component in it to be able to work and function appropriately, or else you would not be able to see, um, which seems kind of a big deal if you like walking around and interacting with people. So that's my two cents. Um, it's in science, and it continues to be so. Uh, whether it's science, uh, considering uh, what we know here on this earth or beyond this earth. It's the old saying, the more we learn, the less we know, or the less we realize uh, we know. It is the, the more you learn about how truly intricate and marvelous and wonderful and mind-boggling Lee amazing, if that's a word, um, about our world and about our bodies and about the, all the systems that, that exist uh, in this world and beyond this world to, uh, to choose the fact that all of that uniformity, all of that clarity, all of that structure, all of that quote-unquote it is amazing how all of that works, is blind chance as to how all of that came about is just really a stretch. The logic behind all of this makes much more sense to say it was by design. 
that it had to have a vastly superior intellect to ours, obviously, to, to set all of this up. But design is a part of our world and a part of our universe. He will give you more examples. He gave, what, three? The Arctic Turn, the uh, kangaroo, the monarch butterfly um, there that, that our scientists just really have a hard time explaining. When he talked about the turn, these weren't Christians trying to prove that the turn was a creation of God. These were scientists trying to disprove <laughs> that the turn, the Arctic turn, was a creation of God. They did everything they could within reason to disprove that this, that the the instincts that these individuals, these these birds have are part of their DNA. It must be something else because if we admit that it's part of their DNA, then we say, well, how did that occur? Who placed that DNA there? How did that DNA get there? That would require them to um, admit that they, they can't disprove, at least, uh, the fact that it was uh, by design and that there was a designer there. Um, when when we talk about the monarch butterflies, when the the kangaroo situation, I'd never heard that about kangaroos. Kangaroos are amazing. Yeah, that <laughs> and that is amazing. Uh, two nipples, one is low fat and one is higher fat. The low fat is for them when they're younger. The higher fat when they're older. And there's a mechanism for when they when and how they switch, which it's is. It's better than baby bottles. <laughs> it's you a know? lot better than baby bottles and formulas and things of that sort. But just just to consider that type of creativity, um, that type of mind that can come up with not only why things happen, but it happens over and over and over again. It is the way things are. And we, as human beings coming into this world that has been created for us, can look at these situations and we can look at them and say, whoa, my, isn't that interesting? Wonder how that happened. Well, it's because we cannot conceive of a mind that is is so far above us. What is it? The foolishness of man? The wisdom of man is the foolishness of God. And there are uh, more than there. There's more than one way to interpret that. But but one of the ways is when man thinks he knows a lot. When man starts relying on himself for existing in this life for taking care of things, for um, wh whatever he is undertaking and ignores God, that's going to come out bad because God's world that he has set up with his vastly superior intellect and creativity and omniscience and omnipotence and, and all of that the best that man has to offer compared to God's 
worst day, if there was such a thing, God would still win out. God's ignorance is superior to man's wisdom. Now, I, I think there might be a better uh, explanation for that, for that verse, but uh, that's at least in there. I think it's a reality, and I think it's a true statement that we, when we contemplate our world around us, especially at this level, when we consider all the things that we can know, at least in this point in time where, where man has advanced to the point we have across all of the sciences, all of the uh, engineering, all of the, all of the knowledge that we have, we still have not scratched the surface. We've only scratched the surface of what there is to know and of what God knows. Um, I'm, uh, I'm on a website that from time to time will have conversations uh, between God and angels. They're made up, obviously. Sure. And, uh, and God... When he's, uh, when he's talking about creating uh, the bumblebee, for example, that's one I was talking to somebody the other day about it. He says, uh, oh, let's, let's make him um, short and fat and fly around and, <laughs> and pollinate uh, flowers. And the angel goes, well, that, well that's an interesting thing. And uh, God says, oh, and let's give him the best knees around. <laughs> That alludes, obviously, to the fact that we say, ooh, that's the bee's knees, and it was a play on that. But sometimes when I look at the kangaroo, or I look at the Arctic tern, or I look at something else that I'm exposed to that just blows my mind about what, what kind of individual comes up with this. And true. I am limited, severely limited by my by my human characteristics and and the limitations on my understanding and my knowledge and my ability to even contemplate some of the things about God. But it it should humble us as a result to think who are we? If God did indeed create us and we talked about this last week or the week before where Job is concerned. Um, you know, who are you to question why God does something? Our attitude should be, as it has been said, God says it, I believe it, and that does it. I think that's yeah. the three, uh, and that, that's all that we need to worry about. Now, true, there, there's, there's benefit uh, in delving into His Word, and, and um, understanding as best we can why God would deal as he did with the Israelites or why Jesus uh, lived the life he did, why God would send his son to this earth to die for mankind who had rejected him. Um, he came to his own people, as, as John says in, in John 1, and they rejected him. He came to save their souls, and they rejected him. Um, members of his own family questioned whether or not he was uh, crazy, out of his mind. So, um, and we, we as human beings say, why would God do that? And 
the overarching um, and ultimate and should be satisfying answer is because he loved us because we are his creation all of this is his creation and he wants us to proclaim his greatness the same way that his creation does you can go back through and you can buy that guy's books he mentioned having five books uh, they're all on that website. I think it was dandydesigns.org. Uh, but you can go back through and you buy all five of them for 15 bucks. So I'm probably going to do that today. <laughs> yeah, um, if, um, if John Clayton was out to make money um, and, and live a luxurious life... Um, he's pretty bad at that. Off, he, he's not doing a very <laughs> good job. Um, I, when, when I first started looking at this, uh, this series, I said to myself rather obnoxiously John couldn't you have found a better shirt or uh, you know an <laughs> undershirt that at least you know come you know comes across evenly and and I think well that's a stupid really stupid way of, of looking at what who he is and what he has to offer he appears to be to me a uh, an extremely humble uh, dedicated Christian who only wants to provide what he has been able to learn in his life to other individuals so that they can, number one, strengthen their own faith in God and two, be able to uh, discuss with others why science supports the Bible and we can believe both. We don't have to make that choice. I always go back to that example he gave, I think, in his first lesson where um, the, the strong physics student in high school came up to him and said, boy, I'd love to be, you know, teach physics one day. I'd love to be a physics, uh, um, a person who was, uh, what is a person who? Physicist. Uh, a physicist. All I could think of was a physicist, a, lot of a physician, and that wasn't it, a physicist. And he said, why not? He says, well, my dad, you know, preacher, and my religion won't let me. And, and he said, that's, that's a ridiculous conundrum. You have created a, a false um, option there. The two of them support each other. And, and Clayton makes the very strong point that if they don't, then could be that the Bible is wrong. Something's messed up. The Bible was created by God. This world was created by God. And if the two are not in sync, if the two don't support one another, then we have problems. Misinterpreted the evidence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, some of the questions on on the sheet um, that we that he didn't deal with um, are, are questions. It says number eight: a chicken egg is an example of incredible design. It says think of how you know this is true. It has the right shape to pass through the hen's reproductive system. Okay, no, no biggie there. It is porous so that the embryo can breathe. It's strong, and he says here in parentheses, you can stand on a chicken egg if you do it right. I'm not going to go home and, and try that, but I do, know, I do know that if you try to squeeze it by putting pressure on all sides of it, you can't, yeah. you, you cannot, and yet it is so fragile in other ways which is kind of amazing. 
It's able to allow the chicken to break out only when the chicken is ready to be out and on its own. And it does not allow a loss of fluids which would dehydrate the embryo. So that's just another example of something that we come into contact with every day that we may not be aware of how much intricate design goes in or went in to that, to that, that particular uh, process. And so the world is full of these. He is, over the next uh, 32 lessons now, he is going to give us example after example after example of how this could not have been um, multiple beneficial chance uh, occurrences. Number nine talks about um, this, and if you don't have a sheet in front of you, I'll, I'll read it for you. It says, when atheists challenge presentations like this, they say, well, well, here is how it could have happened by chance. Then they give an explanation which always has one fatal flaw. And the answer is, they make a series of assumptions as to how the matter itself got to that point where it could reach that desired conclusion. They're starting in the middle of the process and giving you an answer over here which ignores understanding how it got to that middle point in, in the first place. You see large numbers of statements, as he says here, of if, it could have, it might have, it has been suggested that in order to prove something. And as I said, I think last week, it blows my mind that scientists are so adamant about adhering to the laws of science, adhering to the uh, structures of research in order to prove that something is true, yet when they get into areas of evolution, of, of religion, of, of, of design in the universe, they start using these terms, well, it could have been this, it could have been that, uh, well, maybe it was this, and they cannot provide the evidence that science needs to provide to back up uh, their particular stance on something. Being able to do what I want to do without ramifications and without judgment is a pretty strong motivator. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, the last question uh, on the sheet says this, there is death, violence, and suffering in nature. Does this not show a lack of design? And you have heard people say, um, I don't want to believe in a God who would allow uh, a child you know, to suffer and die, or thousands of people to, to suffer and die. And he offers this in response, death is not the ultimate tragedy. There is increasing evidence that much of what we interpret as tragedy in nature is the result of man's interference not God's design. Now, I'm not saying that things don't happen in nature, that I'm, some people, my, my wife has a hard time watching nature programs where you have one animal killing another animal. And that, is, that can be gruesome and it can be uh, disturbing to watch something like that. But it's a fact of life. That's how that person, that person, that animal who was doing the killing, eats and lives. 
and survives. In normal situations, animals do not kill each other except to eat. And he says in parentheses, I'm sure you have your own view of this, and we will explore it more uh, in later programs. So his point in, at this stage in these lessons is to repeat. We exist. How did we come about? How did all of what we have come about? Was it caused or did it just happen? If it caused, was it personal or non-personal? If it was non-personal, then we have, a, a, we have trouble explaining an awful lot of things that, that occur in this world. If it was personal, then we have to answer the question, who was that? And one of the ways we do that is through the design argument that he is talking about. Only a God with the power that, that our God had, has and had could create all of this out of nothing and it to work like a clock, which is a man-made um, object, obviously. But we, when we talk about, you know, when you take the back off of a clock and you've got all of these things and, and uh, sprockets and, and uh, things going back and forth, the, to the untrained eye you go, how in the world would anybody ever put something like this together? Well, man did that. But man can't create that watch or that clock without the materials already there. God, and this is an extremely weak example, creates all the materials from nothing for everything that exists. So, next week, uh, we are going to talk about, as he said, uh, this was intuitive design today, giving several examples and saying our own intuition says, yep, must have been design. Next week he's going to talk about architectural design, which will introduce another aspect of design, which adds to the evidence that um, our world, world was indeed created, and it was created by something far greater than we are, um, at, or can even understand and comprehend. You'll be able to find these on our YouTube channel, on our podcasts, on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, by calling uh, our phone number, 304-278-0763, uh, or, of course, on our Facebook page right here. That's it. We'll see you next Wednesday at 4 o'clock. Thank you. <laughs>